0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Josh Burson about his new report, The Definitive Guide Employee Experience. Josh Burson, welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. I'm happy to be here again. Yeah, it's great to be with you again. We had a
0: chance to chat maybe three, four months ago uh, about your inclusion report that came out from the Josh Burson Academy. Today we're going to be focusing on the new report, the Definitive Guide Employee Experience, which to my understanding was just released yesterday. And I'm super excited to talk through all of the key points from that report and the research that you and your team have been doing. As we get started, I wanted to share Josh's bio with everyone. Josh Burson founded Burson & Associates in 2001 to provide research and advisory services focused on corporate learning. He expanded the company's coverage to encompass HR, talent management, talent acquisition, and leadership and became a recognized expert in the talent market. Burson sold the company to Deloitte in 2012 and was a partner in Burson by Deloitte up until 2018. In 2019, Burson founded the Josh Burson Academy, a uh, Professional Development Academy, which has become the home for HR. In 2020, he put together a team of analysts and advisors who are now working with him to support and guide HR organizations from around the world. Recently published research covers topics such as business resilience in the pandemic, HR technology market trends, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. He is frequently featured in publications such as Forbes, Harvard Business Review, HR Executive, The Wall Street Journal, and CLO Magazine. He is a a popular blogger and has more than 800,000 followers on LinkedIn, uh, which is incredible, and all around just a humble, good guy. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Josh. And uh, anything else you would like to share with listeners before we dive on into the conversation?
1: No, I, I mean, only that I really feel honored to be part of this profession. It's been, you know, the greatest, um, you know, kind of joy of my life to be able to do this for the last 15 or 20 years. So thank you for, you know, going through my bio in such great detail. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it is a great profession,
0: you know, and there's a lot has changed uh, over the last couple of decades. I'm a couple decades into this, so I was just kind of a newbie um, when some of the transformations were starting to occur, and that honestly is really what attracted me um, to the field of HR, Uh, and and I've loved seeing the continued developments and movements, I think, which, you know, for the most part have all been uh, for the better, for, uh, for the better for the profession and for organizations, for leaders, ultimately allowing us to better maximize and utilize the human capital capacity of organizations in meaningful and sustainable ways. And I, you know, I I think that's probably what the crux of your report is all about uh, as we focus in on employee experience. Mm -hmm. So so as we dive on in, I just wanted to share a, a brief little descriptive blurb that was sent to me about the report. It says, employee experience has evolved from a niche topic that only the most forward-thinking CHROs worked onto the C-suite priority. The report crystallizes the key best HR and HR tech practices CEOs need to embed into the organization to deliver excellent employee experience. Most significantly, the report finds that while technology is important, trust in leadership, transparency, and inclusion are what really moves the needle here. And it outlines six key areas. Uh, Focus on trust, transparency, inclusion, and care, the importance of a supportive culture, innovation and sustainable growth depending on equitable rewards and building communities at work, consistent mission-first people investments in any business climate to improve business performance, the employee experience excellence leads directly to increased profit and HR capability and the right technologies are vital to great employee experience. So we're gonna kind of systematically go through these different topical areas as outlined in the report, which is a a really great resource and I'll link to it in the show notes so that that anyone listening can go there and, and find out more details. And I know Josh, you just released a podcast episode as well and some other resources to go along with the report. So as we dive in, Josh, um, let's, well, first, a- anything generally you would like to say about the report, the origins, like the, yeah. the how, how it came about, and then we can dive on into those six points.
1: Well, yeah, I've, <clears throat> I've been thinking about this and working on this for a while, long time, many years. And uh, back when I was at Deloitte, actually before I was at Deloitte, we came up with this model we called simply irresistible, which we now call the irresistible organization. And at the time, what I was trying to do is demystify this whole vague, mushy thing called employee engagement, which, which, which goes back to, uh, you know, Gallup, do you have a best friend at work? Or, uh, you know, the engagement, the annual engagement survey and so forth. And my, you know, non-educated perspective at the time was, wait a minute, you know, that's a very nice number, but there's a whole bunch of very, very specific things that people want out of their jobs, why don't we just figure out what those are? So anyway, I I did a lot of work on that at Deloitte, you know, validated that model many, many times with many, many companies. And what we did this time for this study is we went out and we asked almost a thousand companies how well they were doing 90 different things, roughly 90 different things, got all sorts of data back and then correlated that against financial performance, Innovation and growth performance and human capital performance, and came up with a stack ranked list. <clears throat> and sure enough, at the end of it all, trust came out as number one. <laughs> so, um, and a lot of other things. So it's been a really interesting journey for me, and I've been, you know, working on this for, you know, probably a decade. So, but this report was designed to simplify and clarify the topic and also show people that it's really an initiative, not not a single program that will probably be with us for a long time to come. And it's not only owned by HR, it's HR, it's IT, it's finance, it's facilities, it's health and safety and legal all involved in it. And it's also a reflection that the world we live in now is one where most uh, most of the routine work has been automated and it will continue to be automated. So the human part of work is the value creation part of your company. So it no longer is a, an engagement problem. This is really a strategy. Um, <clears throat> the better your employee experience is, the more innovative and creative and uh, execution oriented you will be. So it's that's really what we tried to do in this report.
0: Yeah, thank you for that background. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right that, you know, there's so much that goes into this kind of mushy uh, term of employee engagement and, and employee experience is really uh, an effort to, to hone in on that a little bit more specifically. I, I, I'm also curious what the, what the genesis was for the 90 elements that you surveyed out to the, you know, the thousand plus companies. Well,
1: <clears throat> you know, it wasn't as scientific as you might think. It was me, Kathy and other people here digging through all of our conversations with hundreds of companies over many years and saying, well, what about this? Let's ask people about that. And then, of course, we had Microsoft who helped us with this project. So they said, well, we want you to look at this piece of tech and this piece of tech and knowledge management on and on. So we got lots of input. Um, I'm sure we left out a few little things, but I think we covered almost everything you could possibly think
0: about. It's <laughs> a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of things. So, <laughs> excellent, excellent. And and like you say, do, collecting all that data, running all that all of that analysis, and what comes back is something that I would have guessed would be among the top most important things, and that is trust is foundational, right? Trust is so important, um, and so your number one summary finding from the report is, you know, focus on trust, transparency, inclusion, and care, all of which are those, those people, human-oriented elements um, that you can't automate, you can't, you know, easily replicate with with uh, tech, um, you, and that's the value-added proposition of an employer with their employees to be able to create that kind of an environment. So I, I actually, I mean, maybe it's, it's confirmation bias on my end because, you know, I, I love um, HR and, and, and those, those elements. But it's it's validating, you know, to hear um, that as a key result from this report. That yes, trust is 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 key. Well, and it's trust interesting so if important. you
1: if you look at the data in the report. And it's on page thirty-two for those of you that have downloaded it. Um, there's slightly different priorities if you look at financial outcomes, people outcomes, or innovation outcomes. Uh, not that different, but a little bit different. But the way I interpret the findings is if you think about it this way, every person wakes up in the morning and, and has X amount of energy, depending on how well they slept and says, I'm gonna bring it to work. And so there's a little mental calculation that goes on is how excited am I about this or am I dragging myself in? Am I looking forward to this or, is, or am I dreading it? And you know, the fact that they have a great IT department doesn't really affect that. <laughs> it may get in the way of it but really jazzes you up about work is saying oh my god i love this company i'm doing something that really means something to me i'm helping society i'm helping make a bunch of money for people or i'm making a bunch of money for myself because of the great work i'm doing you know it makes perfect sense um and then all of these other things growth management job design tech uh well-being are really supporting acts to that <clears throat> so what comes out of it is and, and you know and the reason trust is so important is um people are very nervous about society global warming income inequality diversity racism uh political instability there there we're in a weird economic cycle where most people are a little bit uncertain about a lot of things and they want their employer to be a safe place as a refuge from a lot of strangely uncertain things in the normal non work part of their lives so the companies that provide that are really outperforming they're they're getting great people and they're getting great performance out of people so that, that's to me the interpretation of the data
0: yeah thank you and yeah absolutely it's been that's been my personal experience as well as my experience when working with organizations um, talking with executives uh, that ultimately when you create that transparent environment uh, a trust, uh, orientation within your workforce, where there's mutual accountability and trust, um, then things just tend to run more smoothly. People thrive. And not to say that there aren't organizational challenges. Of course, there are. There always are. Um, but, but you're better equipped to deal with the challenges as they arise um, while, rather than having all the skepticism, all of the pessimism, the change fatigue, you know, all those elements that come into you know organizations that don't have a great employee experience, who don't have that trust element, you know, they 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 have to wade through those murky waters uh, continually uh, because that trust isn't there. Uh, I, I can think of one particular organization uh, that I worked with recently, and they had seen over the course of a five-year period, they they had done an annual. Um, engagement survey, which included a whole bunch of things, but one of the elements was trust and uh, a a scale of trust, a variety of different elements. But one of the elements of the trust was um, that, that the uh, executive team would listen to the feedback um, and input from lower levels and actually do, you know, when they're say they're going to act on it, they'll actually do what they say. Uh, And the trust had like plummeted, it had gone down like 30 points over a five-year period. That should be alarming um, yeah. to people, right? And that's not to say, I mean, those are perceptions. So is that the reality? Has the executive team done that poorly uh, in terms of execution? Um, I don't know, but certainly in ter- they haven't managed the perceptions well. And there's a lot of discontent amongst the employees and the line workers. And that's a problem. And they're going to have a hard time you know, retaining their best people. Well, and-
1: Yeah. And the other thing that happens is when you don't have a trusted relationship and you're not listening as an executive or a leader, you're not going to get the best out of people. They're not going to tell you what's wrong. They're not going to tell you what could be done better. They're just going to kind of keep it to themselves. So it's a little bit of a death spiral.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It is a death spiral. Absolutely. And and so in, in this first point, focusing on trust and transparency, you also include inclusion and care. And I think yeah. that comes back to creating a safe environment. Like you mentioned, uh, people want a safe place at work. They want psychological safety. They want physical safety. They want emotional safety. They want to, they want at least a certain level of consistency, uh, in their experience at work. Um, and, and when that's not there, uh, you know, and, and they're dealing with all this other stuff outside of work, it, it, only will increase, um, you know, the amount of dissonance that they have and the and, and the struggles they have just trying to to navigate the messiness of life. Uh, so if we can, you know, get get rid of, you know, if we can, not that everything's always going to be wonderful and perfect and and neat and tidy at work, but if we can make things as transparent as possible and show genuine caring and create an open uh, environment of psychological safety, then. Yeah, people are going to come, they're going to feel more engaged, they're going to feel more committed, they're going to perform better, they're going to be more willing to speak up, so on and so forth. Like all these things um, start to really come from that. And, and so I think that's that's a wonderful focus.
1: You know, and there's let me and add another dimension to why and how that's changed. You know, as I was looking at the data and thinking about all the work we did on DEI, um, one of the other reasons this is such a big issue is... If I go back to the seventies and the eighties, when I entered the workforce, work was about conformity. Let's do what the company wants to do. Let's be what the company wants me to be. Let's wear the clothes that the company wants me to wear. Let's do the job that the company wants me to do. And if I do that and I hang around long enough, the company will take care of me and I'll grow and my career will get better, um, et cetera. Now we live in a world of individuality everybody wants to be different. Everybody wants to be unique. We have, you know, they told me that in workday, there are 40 definitions of gender, you know, all the different intersectionalities of diversity. Uh, people wear weird hair, they get tattoos, they get, you know, they're trying to express themselves to be different and independent and unique. And some of that's the, you know, Instagram age and so forth. So companies have to suddenly realize that we don't have a bunch of people that conform to these rules and jobs. We have a bunch of individuals who wanna be individuals and bring that individuality into the workplace and use it on behalf of the organization. That's a little bit of a different management problem than we used to have 25 years ago. And that that's why these practices have come out so high, I think is, is the way people feel about their lives and their their identities and what they want to bring to work, um, you know, in this, in this particular, you know, time in society.
0: Yeah, yeah, well said. And the, I feel like we've already kind of addressed this, but the second main point from the report is the importance of a supportive culture, um, whether it's DE&I related support, uh, psychological safety generally, uh, you know, genuine caring uh, and listening, you know, those sorts of things. Anything else that you would like to say uh, in relation to that second main finding from the report around supportive culture,
1: um, well, I, I think being supportive is much trickier than it seems. Uh, a big part of it is listening and paying attention, but you have to in a sense, segment your workforce like you segment your customer base. You know, in most companies that are that are growing, there's different segments of customers. There's customers that are, you know, in small companies, big companies, there's rabid fans, there's people just trying your product for the first time. And that's what goes on inside of companies. The needs, so you have to come up with a methodology of creating personas. Now at Bank of America, for example, we have a case study on this in there. In their consumer bank, they tried all sorts of things to improve retention and engagement. And they eventually found that the dimension of segmentation that worked was by tenure. The first year, there's a whole bunch of things you have to learn how to do. In fact, there's the first week, the first year, that are really different from the second and third and fourth year in the consumer bank. So once they figured that out, they designed an EX program that gives people very specific activities and support and training based on their level of tenure. When they get to the second or third year, they get different support and different materials and different design. When they become a manager, it gets different again. When they have uh, new families at home or their family grows into their home life, they get a different set of things. So they found that they could segment this consumer part of the bank in that way, and they have a huge increase in retention, engagement, and financial performance by doing that. Other companies do it by job role or city or geography. So this isn't a peanut buttering problem where you can say, all right, here's a new program. Let's just roll it out to everybody and everybody will be happy. It's unfortunately not that simple. It's a design problem of of really applying the right design tools to the right groups. And I don't think you necessarily know what those groups are when you start employee experience discussions, but as you get into it and go after the problems that are the worst, go after the areas where the retention is really a problem or the performance is low, you suddenly realize, aha, there's a sort of a grouping of problems we have here that apply to these people in these situations. And then, the, and then you can get smarter and smarter at doing this.
0: I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership Will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities, and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Yeah, smarter and smarter, and and more and more focused and targeted, right? In the efforts right. that you take, um, I think I think that's a really important point. Uh, because we are unique individuals. Uh, you, you, you summarized that very well just a moment ago. Uh, we, and we have varying needs and desires and wants and, you know, things that we hope to get from the workplace. And so, yeah, we have to better understand through, you know, data and metrics, what's happening within our, our teams, within our uh, groupings of uh, different subgroups of people, and then target Programs, initiatives, outreach, conversations, whatever—you know—all all all those uh, things—to make sure that we're taking care of people the way they need and want to be taken care of, right? Um, I I think that's that. There's no there's no shortcut to it, I guess is the the point.
1: Well, the other thing I would add is that um, I believe that making people feel better is not necessarily the goal. The goal in EX is to make people productive. Right. They will feel better as a result of being productive. So I don't think it's piling on, let's give people yoga classes and then, right. well, they don't want the yoga classes if they're working 90 hours a week. What they really <laughs> want is to work 40 hours a week and get their jobs done. So so I think there's this coin, which on one side of the coin is productivity and the other side of the coin is engagement, and it's the same coin. So flip it over and stop thinking about engagement so much and think about productivity and the engagement number will go up. So. So, a lot of this is a little bit more industrialized thinking of engagement around, you know, how are we going to make this job easier for people? Yeah, and and
0: break down the barriers and the roadblocks. And, you know, as a leader, I want to pave the way for my people to be able to be productive and successful uh, and be supportive in that way. And I agree. Well, like when I think about myself, you know, if I'm being productive, if I'm accomplishing things, if I'm having good outcomes, I'm pleased. I'm happy. I'm satisfied, right? And when I'm not, you know, and I feel like I'm grinding, I'm 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 churning, uh, spinning my wheels, and nothing's happening. And I'm putting in long hours and not seeing a whole lot coming from it. Then yeah, you start to feel burned out. You start to uh, be frustrated, uh, especially if you perceive that the reason why you're not getting things done is because of some bureaucratic thing or some you know a leader standing in your way or, or something like that. And so. We we absolutely as leaders can and should be looking for ways to smooth the path, so to speak, and, and create opportunities for people to just be more productive. And that from that, there will be there will come more energy, more motivation, right. more engagement. All those things, I think, absolutely. Very good. Um, so let's talk now about innovation and sustainable growth. Uh, you talk in the report about. Um, that being dependent on equitable rewards and building communities at work. Can you speak a little bit more to that?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting how this idea of communities and social relationships comes up so much. And, you know, one of the things people have talked about a lot during the pandemic is because we're not in the office, we're not spending enough time together, we're not having communities. Actually, what I found is the opposite. I think people are more connected electronically than they were before, but the, what, it, what it means in EX is um, the fact that companies are essentially little societies. Um, and I've worked in a lot of companies and I've observed the different um, you know, sort of sociologies of different companies. In some companies, it's heads down, get your work done and stay out of trouble. And don't, don't cause any interruptions because this company is growing and moving very fast and you need to be part of the freight train. In other companies, it's take really good care of the customers, take really good care of the people, take really good care of each other, for example, in healthcare providers. You know, if it takes a little bit of extra time, take the time. If it takes a little bit of extra money, spend the money because healthcare care or personal care or customer care is number one. In other companies, it's all about creativity. If you're not innovating, if you're not constantly coming up with new ideas, if you're not challenging authority, then you're probably not doing your job. And you know, people fit into those different cultures in different ways. So uh, you know, what you find out in the EX um, you know, data is that social relationships and a feeling of belonging are very high. Now, not everybody feels like they belong in every kind of company. I've talked to a lot of companies that I would not feel good in. I would not, they can do all they want. I wouldn't want to belong there because I don't think I fit that culture. So, so I think you can't really do an EX project without having a serious and honest and sober reflection on where do you fit? And, and by the way, are we hiring people who want that? Because if you hire somebody who doesn't want the culture you have, they might like all the metrics and the pay and the job and the role and all that. They're not going to stick around. So, so, you know, this social or um, societal culture of a company is part of EX. And I think most people who work in EX just have to be sensitive to that um, because, because that will underlie many, many of the decisions you make as to how to solve some of the problems.
0: Yeah, I think so. And, and actually that, that seems to feed into the next point as well with, consistent mission first people investments um, and and just finding alignment, right? Between my values, my meaning and purpose and and what the organization is going for. You have to have that alignment to have sustainable innovation and growth over time to have those communities mean something in the workplace. And organizations need to invest, you know, in creating that kind of an environment, uh, people, a mission first people investment into uh, driving those types of communities and such. Um, what what else can and should we be doing as organizations and as leaders to to improve that kind of a climate to improve performance?
1: Um, I I think one of the most important things that comes out of this is mission and communications from the very top executives. Um, you know you know, these days I'm reading an article on Facebook and, you know, getting all these insights into Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and what you find out in every single company that's performing well or not performing well is that there's a, there's a, some sort of a message that's coming down from top on, you know, what are we trying to accomplish as a company? What is the bigger problem we're trying to solve besides making money and gaining market share? Um, and, For me as a leader, how am I contributing to this and what is my perception of the people around it? And so, you know, I think, you know, EX projects and EX as an initiative has to be sponsored by the CEO. And I don't mean the CEO needs to be involved in all the, you know, gritty details, but the CEO has to have a perspective on, uh, you know, what employee. Uh, roles they will, you know, must be, you know, what what should be the employee role in this mission? Now, the reason that plays so well is goes back to the thing we talked about in the very beginning, is that when people feel affiliation with the mission, they have all this extra energy. And if they don't feel affiliation with the mission, they won't work there anyway. And what you see in a lot of companies that tend to slow down or don't perform well is something about the mission became unclear or maybe dysfunctional, and people checked out, and they said, you know, I'm still working here, but I don't really like what this company does anymore, and I've been in that situation. I've been in several high-growth companies where the mission drifted into something very tactical or very financial, and I saw it, and I felt it, and I continued to work there for a few more years, but, but my heart wasn't in it until I could find the next thing, so, so I, I think that's another area here is that um, leadership, focus on the mission is important. By the way, I think companies should re-dis- revisit their purpose pretty regularly because it changes. You know, I talked to a bank. There's a very, very successful bank in Western Canada. And I met the head of HR there and, you know, she's part of the leadership team. And she said to me, I said, well, how do you guys define what you do? She says, we're, we're here to make families happy. I said, what are you talking about? You're a bank. She says, yeah, we know that but we really believe that when families have financial security and financial safety and financial fitness, they will be better families. And we're a family oriented company. And we know we work in a lot of small towns where most of our customers are small, uh, you know, family type of individuals or families. That's our thing. That's what we do. And if you don't like that, you don't have to work here. Yeah, we sell them credit cards and checking accounts and all that stuff but that's not really our business. That's really the way we fulfill this mes- mission. It turned out their glass door skates ratings, their employee engagement rate, their office charts. Everybody loves working there. Every article ever written about this company is about how excited everybody is to work there. I, I've heard this story over and over again. You need to constantly revisit that uh, and, and communicate it on a regular basis. So people really feel committed to the organization.
0: Yeah, excellent. And driving that ongoing commitment, uh, I, I think is so vital. And getting past, you know, the compliance orientation that so many organizations t- seem to be focused on. I see that so often. And while compliance certainly to employment and labor law is important, and there's various regulations you have to follow, of course. But when, when a, a company culture becomes overly compliance oriented, um, then you get people who who are trying to check the boxes and trying to do what needs to be done, um, there, they will comply, but it's more of a fear-based orientation rather than something that's more purpose-driven and that will drive the commitment that will drive, you know, people getting, waking up in the morning, getting excited to go to work, excited to come in. Um, now it's not an either, or of course you can still do compliance stuff and take, you know, dot all the I's cross all the T's that need to be done. But it's a, it's a fundamentally different kind of a, an experience and a culture um, when when you focus on you know that kind of a, a dynamic climate as opposed to just going for compliance. Um, now we've already talked about the fifth point, but if if you have anything else you would like to to add on, you know, ex excellence leads directly to increased profit. There's so much research on this, and your report points this out again that. This isn't just about the warm, fluffy, like let's kumbaya, sing kumbaya and everyone be happy to be at work. This is like really meaningful bottom line impact for organizations when they can invest in their people and have good employee experience. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to well, that?
1: It, yeah, I think it's a little bit different from that. It's, it's not only that you're investing in your employee experience. It's that when you focus on employee experience, you get smarter and smarter and smarter about what people are doing and what we can do to make it better. See, I think companies are are continuously in a journey of re-engineering themselves to make themselves more productive and more profitable every single day. There's a new tool, there's a new business model, there's a new business we want to get in a new geography. What can we do to make it better? EX should be underneath that. The EX team should be able to go to the business unit head and say, hey, did you know that this group is wasting a whole bunch of time on such and such? Why are you asking them to do that? Or this system is so hard to use, everybody's wasting their time or not using it at all. Those are really business you know, performance issues. So, so good EX teams start with all this HR stuff, and then all of a sudden they realize, wow, there's all sorts of just general business process opportunities for improvement. I was just writing an article today. There was a project that Pepsi did in the beginning of the pandemic. It was sponsored by HR. It was called the Process Shredder. And what they did is they put together a crowdsource survey to ask people of all the things you're wasting time on, what is one thing we should get rid of? And so they had like thousands of people fill this thing out. They, They upvoted on each other's suggestions. And the number one practice that was getting in people's way of getting their jobs done was performance management. It was all of the talent reviews and calibration sessions and meetings and forms that people were filling up. So the HR people look at this and they're like, hmm, you know, we were planning on redoing that in a couple of years, maybe we better fix it now. So they just started scrapping stuff and make it made it simpler. And along comes the pandemic and it turned out to be perfect timing. But. That, that wasn't, you know, that was really a business re-engineering thing. So so I think the EX team needs to be comfortable getting their hands dirty with the way people do their jobs. And then going back to IT and, a, and the business team and saying, hey, we found some things here that just are really, really hard for people to do. They're affecting employees, they're affecting customers, they're probably affecting our financial performance. Let's fix it. Um, so it's, you know, I don't know where these projects come from normally. You know, maybe there's a business reengineering consulting group in the company that runs around and looks for them, but all of a sudden the EX group gets to look at them.
0: Yeah, excellent. And the last key point from uh, your report is that HR capability and the right technologies are vital to great EX. Now, I know I only have you for a couple more minutes, um, but what is it about HR technology that can be utilized Uh, to bring about a greater employee experience?
1: Well, I think HR people, we we have a capability model and a capability assessment. I mean, there's a bunch of things in HR that you kind of need to get good at. You need to get good at design thinking. You need to get good at iterative design because you never solve this in one fell swoop. It's always a constant upgrading process. You need to get good at data and looking at data so you know uh, what aspects of the ex are working well? What aren't? What are the roles and, and personas where we can affect more, uh, have more impact? Um, you need to get good at, be familiar with digital tools and not intimidated with the fact that maybe we could automate this. Maybe we could put a chatbot here. Those are not, you know, really that difficult things to do. But you need to be okay with that. And then I think you need to be um, reasonably familiar with the general disciplines of HR of how we recruit and develop and develop leaders and assess people, because those will come up as supporting acts in the EX journey. So I think great EX uh, you know, leaders and practitioners kind of need a good dom- set of domain expertise in HR. We call it the full stack HR professional where you're aware of the whole stack of issues in HR, but particularly design thinking data um, and analytics come up very, very high as d- disciplines that are needed in the EX project. So that's an area of, of things that are that are particularly acute right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and the report gets into so much detail on this point. And, and I, you know, we don't have the time today, unfortunately, to dig into that more specifically. But I definitely will refer listeners back to the report. Well, Josh, it has been a real pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate your generosity with your time. Before we close today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about the Burson Academy, uh, and any final word on the topic?
1: Well, I I thank you for the opportunity, Jonathan. Um, I I think it's a big new um, domain. It's not a project. It's not a tool. I would um, be wary of all the vendors selling employee experience systems and, you know, they're all great for different reasons. Um, It's essentially a design project. So consider yourself now a designer and you're going to be designing employee experience solutions for many years to come. You're going to be working a cross functional team um, and your skills will have to be improved to, to get good at this, but it's, it's really one of the greatest opportunities for people in HR. So I I'm really excited about the fact that it's happening. And you know, we're going to keep at this. We have the report, which has got tons of information, and a maturity model, and a diagnostic. Um, we're putting together some design guides, which you can use with your team to sit down and look at designs. Uh, and we have all sorts of case studies and other tools to help companies. So you know, please call us if you'd like to get some help on the whole project. And, um, and I think we'll be working on this for many years to come.
0: Thank you, Josh. It's been a pleasure. I hope to have you back on the podcast again in the future, and I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected. As always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day, and I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch.